0: Let's go ahead and pray. Holy Father, we thank you this evening to be able to gather in this place. Thank you for these young men and women and those who train them up in music and scripture each Wednesday night. Encourage them this evening and bless their ministry. And as we open your word, we pray and ask the Spirit, our ultimate teacher, would take the truth that he inspired and help us to understand it and to apply it so we thank you in advance for your help i trust that he'll empower me tonight and use me i ask in jesus name amen so this course is what we teach it's called basic discipleship for those who use the search the scriptures app but this is what's offered in our discovery class on sunday morning This is section 8, and it concerns developing an eternal perspective. Just for those who are walking in for the first time, Roman numeral 1, we covered how our need is to recognize the shortness of life on earth. In Psalm 39, which we examined in depth, the psalmist prayed, Lord, let me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. That's a great prayer in which to pray. The scripture says in that psalm, we are like a mere breath. Very similar to the language that James uses. Psalm 90, we examined also the shortness of life. Moses wrote that psalm. It's the oldest psalm in all of Scripture. And he reminded us that uh, our life is uh, like grass that sprouts anew. It flourishes and then it withers away. He told us, as for the days of our life, there are 70 years, or due to strength, 80 And so he prayed, as we've been praying, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Then we examined James and the shortness of life. He told us that we are but a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. And yet, when you take our life that's like your breath on a cold day, that's how short it is in comparison to eternity. Yet, Scripture teaches the way you invest your vapor as a saved person will influence your eternal reward. And so we looked at first the shortness of life. And then in Roman numeral two, we began dialoguing over the fact that we need to think and uh, live with an eternal outlook. We saw that believers face a judgment for sin, not for sin, but for service. And so our judgment for sin, if you've been saved, has been dealt with. Now, if you're not saved then you are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on you, to quote the Lord Jesus. But if you fled to Him for escape and forgiveness, then you have a new standing with God. But that does not mean that when you get to heaven, it's just come on in. You and I will face an evaluation as believers. There's the believer's judgment. And we've been looking at some of the central passages for that. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says our ambition, whether home or absent, is to be pleasing to him. For he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment seat is the word bema. It's with the article before the bema. The bema is a review seat. And as it relates to the believer, it's not to determine if we get into heaven. That's settled by the time you've taken your last breath. But it is a judgment in heaven for saved people <clears throat> to determine your eternal reward. And Jesus, of course, told us to lay up treasure in heaven. Then we looked at Romans fourteen twelve, where we were reminded, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And the third central passage that we examined was 1 Corinthians 3, where we were examining last time that no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so he reminds the Corinthians, he planted the church there, he laid the foundation through the preaching of the gospel, but others came in behind him and built on that foundation. And so he gives a warning that each man, each pastor contextually is to be careful how he builds because a day will come when God will test the quality of every man's work. But as we saw that that, while it's addressing pastors, it doesn't simply Relate to pastors. It relates to all Christians because that judgment is broadened with all the same principles in Romans fourteen and in 2 Corinthians five. Now, um, if you have your handout open, we covered numbers seventy to seventy-nine, but I'm just going to read it. It's all filled in, all the blanks for you on that page. Uh, some people are taking this course as part of the Institute of Biblical Studies, so they're filling in the blanks. So bear with me. There's a pen in the seat back pocket if you need one. I would recommend that you take notes tonight. But just so you don't walk in cold, but with some context, let me just read where we were in terms of the flow of thought. Seventy. One of the most sobering thoughts that I can share with a believer is that in the future, each one of us will be judged for our service to Christ. Again, this is a judgment not for sin, but for service. Sadly, Many Christians think that since they are saved, and that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that they will not have to give any kind of an account for the way they have lived. They have falsely concluded that since God is going to take all His people to heaven, that each one of us will equally share the same blessings. But as we will study in this section, God will ask each of us to give an account for the way that we've prayed and worshiped and witnessed and given and served with our gifts and the way in which we have sacrificed for his kingdom and glory. Unfortunately, today's Christians as a whole have seriously neglected or have willfully diluted the whole truth of our future examination. And so on the one hand, it is critical that we all understand when speaking of the judgment, we're not talking about some, quote, evangelical purgatory. Because we will never be content, condemned for sins Jesus bore as our substitute. Again, there is now, now, today, at this moment, no condemnation if you're in Christ. And so because there is no condemnation, and that nothing can separate us from the love of a love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we will stand before God without fear of rejection if we have trusted Christ as Lord. At the same time, God is interested in quality. We just read, God will test the quality of every man's work with fire. And he, if you remember last time, comparatively put our works into two groups, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So God's interested in quality and accountability without ever dismissing quantity. But clearly quantity means nothing if the quality is lacking which is why Paul can write in 2 Timothy 2:5 if anyone competes and again he's using this imagery of a race to describe our Christian walk he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules so we're studying those rules and what it is that God will look at in the judgment seat of Christ it's still going to take us at least 3 weeks to get through that so there are several pictures Um, well, 78, just as athletes in Paul's day had to play according to the rules, even so in God's Christian race, we must follow the rules too. And we must know the rule book, the Bible, in order to know what constitutes eternal treasure. There are several pictures used in God's Word to illustrate the principles of evaluation at the judgment of the just or the bema about the kind of service we do especially that of an athletic contest as explained in 1 Corinthians 9. Let's read that. That's where we left off. Notice 1 Corinthians nine twenty-four. Do you not know that all who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may win? So, with that said, now we're breaking new ground. Unlike the modern Olympic Games where gold, silver, and bronze medals are awarded, In the ancient games, only the winner received the prize, and so there was no second-place award. Winning was everything. However, in this race, we call the Christian life, we all run, we all can win. And so the Apostle Paul says, run in such a way that you may win. Who may? It's you all. It's you plural. So we're all in the race, Everyone can potentially win in this race. So it's not a race where there's only one reward. However, not all win. And the reason is, it's because they choose to lose. It's a choice we make as we hope to unfold. And in this spiritual race, we're not competing against one another. We're actually serving one another and competing against our common enemy. We have an enemy. He's called the evil one. There are three forces that wage war against the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the one who is energizing this current world system, Paul tells us in Ephesians, is Satan himself. And so we read here, again from the 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to 27 passage, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so in the Isthmian games, those who won the competition were awarded with a perishable crown. Well, our focus as believers in Jesus is on the eternal treasure laid up in heaven, called here in verse 25, an imperishable crown. Maybe you've competed in races over the years or some competition and you have a trophy and it's already tarnished or maybe it's in the trash can. That's a very perishable accomplishment. Nothing wrong with it, just perishable. And so God wants us to have an imperishable crown. Since 84, since the goal in running is to win the prize, Paul wanted to examine it, wanted to exercise self control, which of course is a fruit of the Spirit in accordance with the truth of Scripture, in order to obtain the imperishable crown. Again, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Now, he's not speaking simply of the self-control that an athlete can work on. He's using that imagery of someone running in a race, for certainly an athlete has to get up in the morning, he has to consistently run, he has to consistently eat right, etc., etc., whatever sport you may be competing in. So there's a level of self-control, but as Paul is going to unfold for us, the self-control that the believer needs is not something you can simply manufacture. There are many highly disciplined pagans. A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And only those who've been regenerated, born again, are indwelt by the Spirit and potentially can exercise true biblical self-control. So Paul writes, number 85, Paul humbly wrote, Less possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's interesting. When Paul writes that, if you remember, I reminded you a few weeks back of a mnemonic device I taught you when we preached the book of Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 2, 1. Those are Paul's 13 epistles. In the first journey, he wrote one book, Galatians. On the second missionary journey, he wrote two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In the third missionary journey, he wrote three books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans, in that order. So they're not in that order in our Bible, but that's chronologically how they were written as you read the Acts of the Apostles. Then on the fourth journey, which is not technically a missionary journey as we traditionally define it, but it was in Paul's eyes because he was on a mission. He wanted to go to Rome. He appealed to Caesar. And so he writes the four prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians. He writes Philemon, and he writes Philippians. And then he's free for a period of time where he writes the first two pastoral epistles, if you remember, 1 Timothy and Titus. Then in his final imprisonment, he writes his last will and testament, 2 Timothy. So you can put the chronology of Paul's life together based on the Acts of the Apostles because Luke is a premier historian. So when Paul writes this statement in 1 Corinthians 9, he had been born again for 25 years and called into ministry. But you see, he wanted to finish well. He didn't assume that just because he had started well and God was using him so powerfully that he'd run the race all the way to the end. And sometimes people rest on their laurels. Oh, when I was young, I did all that. Let the younger people do that. And they quit in the final chapter of their life when you want to run all the way to the end. Less possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. As he saw himself both as a leader sharing the rules of the game and yet needing to follow the rules that he preached about. As we have previously examined in section 8 and have, and have covered in depth in section 1 of this course, the Apostle Paul was not saying he could lose his salvation for he knew he was eternally secure. So your Arminians who say, oh, you can lose salvation, they'll appeal to a text like 1 Corinthians 9. It's just silly. It's poor exegesis. Because Paul affirms the eternal security of the believer in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about his reward. He's talking about the judgment of the just. He's talking about the final evaluation. He's talking about running the race all the way to the end. He knew he was secure in Christ, and so he affirms that. In that great section in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible is clear that it is impossible for a believer to sever his salvation, but it is not impossible to suffer a loss of reward. And 2 John 8 teaches us that. If you're new to the Bible, 2 John has just one chapter, so you typically would write it 2 John, then the number 8, instead of 2 John 1, 8, though you could. Um, however, He was concerned that God might not be able to continue to use him in preaching the gospel and serving his people, and that he might suffer a loss of rewards, shrinking away in shame at his coming. 1 John 2.28 There are those whom the Lord is ashamed of, whom he will not confess before his Father in heaven, because they've never been regenerated, And they were, in essence, unwilling to acknowledge him before men. But then there are those believers who themselves will shrink back in shame when they see the Lord because of the way they live. To be able to develop an eternal perspective, we must know and apply the criteria. I didn't say criterion because it's not a single issue. It's criteria, and we'll look at a multiplicity of those criteria and apply the criteria that God will someday use in evaluating our service for him. So in light of that, the apostle says, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? In light of the fact that he wants to run the race and get the imperishable wreath, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body, not buffet my body, (laughs) I buffet my body And make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Wow. The Apostle Paul said that. I started the ministry in 1978. And many of the people I started with are no longer in ministry. Not because they got sick or were disabled but because they disqualified themselves from serving the Lord. Knowing this, number 90, knowing this and wanting to please Jesus, Paul did not run without aim. In box says to only beat the air. By the way, how do you run so that you're not running without aim? In boxes, if you're just taking shots, but you're not making any contact. We're going to cover that in depth what really constitutes treasure in heaven. It's not probably what maybe you think. There are some things that you think might have no eternal value that have huge eternal value. He tells us, I buffet my body and make it my slave because he wants to be sure that that his body was the servant and that his inner man was the master, which is why our study Uh, which is why our study in this course on the Spirit-filled life is critical. Two people tonight can serve with our children. One individual Spirit-filled, one doing it in the energy of the flesh. One did the exact same thing, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, and then one didn't. And in heaven, somebody laid up gold, silver, and precious stones, and the other wood, hay, and stubble. I hope everyone back there is filled with the Spirit. But listen, I meet some of the most miserable people I've met in my life in ministry. If the joy of the Lord has left your life and your service to the Lord, go back through that handout on what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because as we're going to see, it is only Spirit-filled service that constitutes eternal reward. what number? 92. Thank you, Ed. To be able to develop an eternal perspective, we must know the kind of service that constitutes eternal value versus activity that is only temporal. Knowing that we are unconditionally accepted and that the Spirit is our helper to obey we should be highly motivated to learn Jesus's criteria and testing the quality of each man's work for determining our eternal rewards. And I said Jesus's criteria, not to separate him from the other members of the Godhead, but remember all judgment, the scripture says, has been given to the son. Even the judgment of the lost at the great white throne judgment, it's the Lord Jesus who's sitting on that throne. And it's called the Bama seat of Christ. Christ's evaluates our life. Sadly, liberal pastors will, out of context, will use out of context those passages that deal with eternal rewards in order to teach that we merit heaven by works. So in Duke Chapel one day where I served for five years, not in the chapel, but in campus ministry, I remember this one apostate preacher, he was as lost as could be And he used the sheep and goats judgment, you know, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? Da-da-da-da. When did we see you need? And he taught salvation by works. Actually, that particular text is demonstrating fruit that a genuine Christian will display. And then there are passages like Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, but... Treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thief break in and steal. And and people will use texts like that to teach you earn and work your way to heaven. When contextually, they're not dealing with salvation, they're dealing with our service. And so 95, in distinguishing salvation passages from service passages, it's helpful to remember first that salvation is always spoken of as an unmerited free gift. So Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so he describes salvation, of course, as the gift of God. Paul will write, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. The one who's working for salvation is still lost. It's just that simple. It's a gift that must humbly receive for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, In the great final closing chapter and final paragraph in the Revelation, the Spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life. How? Without cost. We read in Titus 3, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. How? Not on the basis of deeds, because again, it's a gift. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So by contrast, as we will study later in this section, rewards are earned by works that are done out of a Spirit-filled life. That is a critical, critical statement that we be spirit-filled Christians. And I suppose it's one of the most attacked and convoluted doctrines that has entered into the church. People have substituted emotionalism for being spirit-filled, ecstatic utterances for being spirit-filled, and on and on we could go. Um, We continue here. And uh, And whoever... in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So again, we're keen off of 96. Rewards are earned. Salvation is a gift. Rewards are earned. Well, on what level? Jesus said you could just give a cup of cold water in his name. And God sees it. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. We'll look at that concept later on. It's one implication of rewards. In addition, salvation is always spoken of as a present possession. So salvation is spoken as a gift, whereas our rewards are earned. Salvation is spoken of as a present possession. So, for instance, he who believes in the Son has, not will have, but has this moment, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's different kinds of wrath as we discussed recently. There's cataclysmic wrath like the great flood, like the tribulation, or or like... um, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's, there's tribulational wrath It's still future. There's eternal wrath. There is um, abandonment wrath like in Romans 1, and that's what our nation is witnessing in these days, and not just the United States, but nations across the planet, as the wrath of God is being revealed. And then there's this verse, which is what we call abiding wrath. I said yesterday on the Bible line, I said if If I thought for one second I had not been forgiven and saved and I understood this principle, that the wrath of God abides on me, I I couldn't sleep at night. (laughs) I'd want to get that issue settled. So salvation is spoken of as a present possession. Jesus also said in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Which again tells you eternal life is more than heaven, right? That's included in the package. But this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. And so we speak of this personal relationship with the Lord. We're not in heaven, but I can have this moment eternal life because eternal life is knowing the Lord received, of course, by faith. By contrast, rewards are habitually described as a future attainment. And so we studied last week, if any man's work which he has built on the foundation remains, he will receive a reward. Now we saw if any man's works are burned up, he'll suffer loss. Not a loss of salvation, but a loss of rewards. But when God tests the quality of each man's work with fire, if our works pass the test, we receive a reward. That's in the future. He will receive a reward. Everyone, Paul said, we just read a moment ago, who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I have fought the good fight. These are Paul's last recorded words in the final chapter of Scripture that he'll ever pen, and out of the 13 epistles he writes. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith in the future. There it is, in the future. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. By the way, that's an important theological point. There's a relationship between future reward and those who love His appearing. Living in light of the fact that He is coming. 99, as we work through this topic of rewards, and by the way, there's a whole topic in this series on God's prophetic schedule. It's one of the handouts. And we'll explore that very point that I just mentioned in great detail. This is number 8. Uh, That's in number 10. As we work through this topic of rewards with Jesus commanding us to lay up treasure in heaven, it is critical that we know that the basis and motivation for this and all his commands is still God's unconditional love. It has often been said that God is not looking for people of great ability, but people of great availability. And so when we are available to obey... The Spirit empowers us, and we are rewarded in eternity forever. So Paul reminds the Corinthians in that great resurrection chapter, God wants his people to know that our toil is not in vain in the Lord, and that we will reap what has been sown in life. So think about that for a second. When we talk about laying up treasure in heaven, it's not like, well, I'm saved by grace and now I'm under this new burden. I got to do something that's worthwhile for eternity. You cannot change the unconditional, eternal status that God has granted to you. You are in Christ. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. You can't do anything to make him love you less. He loves you through his son. And so with any command of Scripture, it is the love of God and our loving response that should motivate us. Rewards, 102, are a display of God's justice as well as we just read. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. We read it last week. And the love which you have shown towards His name and having ministered and in still ministering to His saints. Hey, that's an important verse. If you're looking for the person who recruited you for a job in the church or me as a pastor or some other pastor to come and pat you on the back and I don't do it and you're disappointed, you're serving the wrong person. Now we need to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And when we have an opportunity to affirm those that are serving and serving well for the glory of God, do it. But you that's not your motivation. It must never be our motivation. And even if no one sees what you are doing, I remember I was a relatively new Christian and I was given the assignment to get the overhead projector and to bring it to the weekly Campus Crusade meeting. The overhead projector was seriously almost the size of the top of this pulpit. The thing was like this. And it weighed a ton. They made them smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter. But this is 1975. This thing was massive. And the meeting was on a Thursday night. And I had classes all day on Thursday. And so I had to get there before my 8 p.m. class. The AV office opened at 7.30. I picked up that thing. I carried it to upper campus there at B.C., And then made it just in time to my first class. And then at the end of the day, I had to lug that thing halfway across campus to where we met. Then I had to bring it back that night. And then I had to have it back before my Friday classes started. Because if it wasn't there by noon, then there was a fine and I paid it. And this went on week after week after week. And I thought, I wonder what some of those Campus Crusade staff members are doing. I bet they're sleeping right now. God reminded me of this verse. He is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and instilled ministering to the saints. As Todd and I were speaking and we were talking about pastors and successfulness and my son, I said, there's two big problems in the church today. There's a huge amount of pastors that are incredibly lazy. And they have so much discretionary time, they can blow it off. And then there are those pastors who are killing themselves doing all the wrong things. And so he wants to do a pastor's conference. I said, well, we, 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 we need to help pastors to do the right thing. And to focus on the non-negotiables. 103, I'm getting lost here. And so Paul can go on to encourage the Galatians. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. All right, that brings us to point C. Believers are to be motivated by God's grace and by God's glory. God's grace and God's glory. While there is much silence on the implications of our future rewards... We do know that eternal rewards glorify God as we will be shown by our heavenly worship and by the glory Jesus receives from his bride, the church. After the church is caught up, we shall all be caught up, harpazo in the Latin Bible, rapture, and so we get our word rapture. After the church is raptured or caught up, we discover in Revelation 4, 24 elders are sitting on thrones reigning as Jesus promised. So there's a door opened in heaven and you see these 24 elders and they're worshiping the Lord. And by the way, the church is never mentioned again in Revelation until she comes back with Jesus at the second coming. Why? Because the church is not on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel's Uh, prophecy. Around the thrones were 24 thrones. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. The church has repeatedly promised a co-regency with the Lord Jesus. Jesus stated that a number of times, even in the Revelation. Paul reminded us if we uh, walk with the Lord, will rule with him, will reign with him. And there are many passages that affirm that. And so the church has repeatedly promised a co-regency with Jesus Christ, and these elders represent that truth. Certainly, these elders are not exalting themselves, but like all believers in heaven, they seek to glorify the one who gifted them with eternal life. Who gifted them. These elders, as we see here, cast their crowns. The Lord puts it on their head and they take it off their heads and they cast their crowns to express their worship to the Lord Jesus. Listen to these words. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. These elders in Revelation 4 are representative of the believers at large, as we will have the opportunity to worship Christ, some in greater capacity with their rewards than others. We'll explore that a little bit later. Certainly, no one will be strutting around like a peacock wearing crowns or wearing badges as in the military or medals as in the Olympics because all praise and honor and glory will go to Jesus alone. God is looking for yielded believers through whom he can work, which is why the apostle Paul tells the church in Philippi these words. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this verse transitions with therefore, or so then, depending on your English Bible. The older editions of the NAS said, therefore, the newer ones say so then. You can render it either way. It's the same particle dia. And many times it's translated, therefore. Why they went so then was debatable, but it, it opens with therefore or so then from Paul's focus on Christ's humility and that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death to our response as those saved, my beloved. And so remember, just that great pericope of Scripture, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God. He emptied himself, took on our humanity, went to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so on and so forth. And and he says, in light of that, in light of the incredible thing that he did for you and for me, we are to work out our salvation. And again, this is the response of those who are saved, that is, those whom he calls my beloved. Again, that's important point 10, when God commands us to work out our salvation, He is not instructing us to work for our salvation, for that has been paid in full by Christ's death. By the way, in the Baltimore Catechism, the Roman Catholic Church uses in the updated Catechism, where they, in essence, say faith in Jesus plus good works equals salvation. They use this text in James, Faith Without Works is Dead, to say that we're not saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But that's out of context. He's not instructing us to work for our salvation, for that has been paid in full. But they don't care what you think when you read the Bible because you can't read it and understand it. Only the magisterium can officially interpret the Bible for you. That's cult like. This is not an exhortation to the lost, but to those who are saved, such that this command, work out your salvation, speaks of our need to live out, to practice, and to demonstrate the salvation which believers possess. There is a sense in which our salvation is completed. By the way, Paul has already stated in Philippians 1, he that began a good work in you absolutely will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. There's, what he started, he will complete. But there is a sense in which our salvation is completed, and so we are justified. We've been declared righteous. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. But there is also a sense in which our salvation is incomplete, such that we are to work out in our experience the righteousness God has credited to us. And you will know, of course, that this is called sanctification in the broadest sense. There's actually three tenses of sanctification. Sanctified past tense. Um, you were justified, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 6.11. This is the will of God, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's present tense. Then 1 Thessalonians 5, he looks at future sanctification. So there are three tenses to salvation, but in broad terms we say justification from the penalty of sin. Present tense sanctification speaks of conformity today to the righteousness that God's credited to us. In other words, you and I becoming in our experience what God says is true of us in our position. This is known as sanctification, and it is to be done with fear and trembling, which speaks of our total dependence in the Lord for strength. Allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, this is the manner in which the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, fear and trembling. So let me read 1 Corinthians 2, the first four verses, five verses. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Now Paul is not speaking of serving with fear of hell or damnation such that one's substandard service might bring condemnation for we are forever secure. So again, when he's talking about being disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9, he's not worried about losing his salvation. And neither is he here thinking, when he uses this expression, fear and trembling, like, man, I, I might blow it and lose my salvation. No, we are forever secure. Our fear and trembling should be the joyful trembling of an encounter with the Holy Spirit filling us and so choosing to serve through us. Paul had learned that when he was weak, then God made him strong because when he is weak, God's grace is most powerful. That's when it is most powerfully seen. Again, listen to these words. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When the apostle Paul told the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, he was not literally afraid of going to a paganized city like Corinth. The word Corinth became actually a synonym for infidelity, for immorality. And it was a wicked place. He wasn't afraid of going there to preach the gospel. Oh man, they might beat me up. Jesus said, Don't fear those who can kill the body only. That's the most they can do is take you out with a gun or strangle you, however, they want to take down Christians, like those in northern India who are being just literally butchered, even in the past week. He wasn't afraid of that. He was not literally afraid of going to a paganized city like Corinth where he might encounter persecution. Paul was fearful that he might preach in his own power, and in his own strength. Of course, if you remember, he's been contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of men. And there's a lot of churches that are huge. But they're built on the wisdom of men. And they have not utilized the Word of God as their instrument in which to build God's church. It looks impressive. But if even some of these pastors who have built some of these mega churches, and there are some mega churches that have been built with the Word of God too. But even some of these pastors who have built these mega churches, who know the Lord, who have used the wrong kind of wisdom, the wisdom of this world, which is foolishness, it will just be wood, hay, and straw. And that's Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians 3. Be careful how you build. Going weakness. So the Apostle Paul's argument is that his weakness as an Apostle was actually a great thing because it put all the focus on the cross of Christ and none of the focus on his abilities and talents. We just saw that church in Texas last week, one of these mega evangelical churches. What's the worship pastor been doing? Since 2011, he's been molesting teenage boys sick. Like, who's on first? Nobody knew that. Nobody knew that there was no power on that man's life. That's pathetic. That's a church that has no discernment. And I'll tell you why it has no discernment, because the pulpit is pathetically weak. In the first century, history records that many orators were entertainers as they sought to dazzle the crowds with their verbal performance and skills. By contrast, in his preaching, the Apostle Paul depended on the power of the Holy Spirit, which he described as a demonstration. I came in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, not a performance. What a different word. Certainly, the Apostle Paul was not telling pastors to deliberately preach poorly or to avoid using the spiritual gifts that God had given them. The Apostle Paul was a brilliant and well-educated man. Most would say, and I would agree, that he had an equivalent of three PhDs. Possibly the greatest theologian outside of Jesus who ever served. Yet, he did not depend on himself. For this reason, Paul could write, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, 2 Corinthians 3.5. He wanted to rely only on that adequacy and not himself. He knew that the conviction that leads to true conversion came as a result of the Holy Spirit's power and not from the cleverness of his abilities. So then, my beloved, writing to believers, that's a term that's reserved in the New Testament, only for those who are born again, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so when the Apostle Paul commands the Philippians in each one of us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling... He is emphasizing our need to serve God, not out of a sense of self-confidence, but dependence, a demonstration, as he said, of the Spirit's work in our life. At the judgment seat of Christ, only that service done out of a sense of weakness in fear by the Holy Spirit will produce eternal fruit. This should cause us to tremble the thought of serving without God's help. I don't care what you're doing. You may be working in the nursery and caring for infants and changing diapers. Doesn't matter. It's all potentially an opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven if we're doing it with God's help. 28, Paul notes here that the church had always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence as they faithfully followed God's commands, whether or not he was with them, demonstrating true faith. So they weren't serving Paul is the point here, right? They were serving Jesus. We are to work out what God is working in, with Paul making no attempt to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Why? Because he preaches both. God's sovereign, but he uses people. Will all the elect be saved? Scripture says he will. They will. How are they going to get saved? We have to go tell them. The wonder of it all is that God, who commands His will, helps us to carry out His will. And so the promise that is connected to verse twelve follows as he reasons. Here's the re- for it is God. This is great. For it is God at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, knowing that God is at work within us should create a strong desire to work diligently with fear and trembling. But it should also also create a deep sense of satisfaction knowing that God is ready to help. I can do all things, right? Through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great promise. Now, God is not at work in us if we're out of fellowship with the Lord. But if we're walking with the Lord, He's at work in us. And that should just motivate us. And so in the broader context of our discussion on eternal rewards, when we are spirit-filled, God helps us to achieve His will, and He will reward us for it. So He does it through us, and then He rewards us for it. That is a great thing to get a hold of, it is not that we are saved by grace and then we're placed under the burden of achieving eternal rewards, for with all God's commands we are under grace. When Jesus commands us, store up for yourselves or lay up for yourselves, either translation, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal, as with any command, we are to respond out of love. John teaches us that our love is to be motivated by God's unconditional love, such that he can write, we love because he first loved us. And certainly love is more than a feeling. For he goes on to say that our love is seen when we respond in obedience to God's commandments. For this is the love of God, he'll say a few verses later, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When we understand God's unconditional love for us, again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf. Why? So that we could take on the righteousness of God in Christ. Our standing is in Christ. There's now no condemnation. And John 17 says he loves us as much as he loves his own son. And so when we understand God's unconditional love for us and that the Father loves us as much as he loves his son, then his commandments are not burdensome. But it's a pleasure to obey. I I get to come to church. I get to be with God's people. I get to share my faith. I get to serve in Awana. I, I get to work in the nursery not a burden, if you're doing that out of your love for the Lord. It's a pleasure to obey. It is amazing to think that as God allows us to participate with Him, and as we rely on the Spirit to serve through us, that in heaven He gives us all the credit. As we will learn, while God has not hidden from us how we can achieve eternal rewards. God in his infinite wisdom for now has hidden much about the implication of our rewards, probably to help keep our motives pure. Now, he hasn't hidden at all, but he's hidden no doubt a lot. We'll see what he has revealed. While we cannot lose our salvation, we must stay the course in faithfulness. Otherwise, we, risk, we run the risk of losing our full reward. 2 John 1, eight, Or you could say 2 John 8. All right? Let's, we'll leave it there. Let's uh, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table as our men, our deacons, come down to present to us the bread. It is a time of reflection. If you're new here, we don't have a closed communion table. It's open to anyone. It's not our table. It's the Lord's table. It's called the Lord's Supper. Typically, when churches call it something beyond the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table, they infuse meaning into it. When a church typically calls the Lord's table a sacrament, like in the Anglican church, the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, and so on, the Methodist church, they mean different things than what Scripture itself teaches. Grace is not infused to us in this ordinance, except that when we obey the Lord, we always experience His grace because when we humble ourselves, He gives grace to the humble, and He resists the proud. And that's why when we have the Lord's Supper, it's a command. We should come if at all possible. We alternate it every month between Wednesday and Sunday. But as we obey the Lord and we participate at this table, the warning in Scripture is not to do it in an illegitimate fashion. And An illegitimate fashion is to have known, unconfessed sin in your heart. So Paul warns us that we're to examine ourselves. So our Father, we thank you this evening for the bread a picture of the body of the Lord Jesus. You said He Himself bore our sin in His own body on the cross. His sinless body became the very object of Your wrath. With His precious blood, He purchased our salvation. We thank You that we can come before You this evening. And if there's failure in our life, You've promised us in 1 John 1-9 that if we confess our sins, You are faithful, and You are righteous, to forgive us and to cleanse us. Thank You for that promise that You've given only to those who are saved. And so, Spirit of God, if there be some hurtful way in us, we pray You'd bring it to the forefront of our minds that we might confess it and forsake it and participate in this table in a way that's pleasing to You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. We'll hold the bread together as a symbol of our unity, and then we'll eat together. One body, individually members of it. Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. After they had participated in the unleavened bread, a picture of the sinless body of the Lord Jesus, they took the Passover cup and he instituted new meaning to it. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. And so not only does the blood of Christ purchase our eternal salvation, but as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. So it's not the long confession or even the earnestness of your confession that provides the forgiveness. It's the blood of Christ. God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. But that's not the merit, that's not the ground on which our forgiveness comes. As we walk in the light, there's an assumption, there's genuine confession. To confess means to agree with God, to say what He says about sin. That it's wrong, it's displeasing, that we have usurped His Lordship maybe in a particular area of our life. But as we walk in the light, then the blood of Christ cleanses us. And so as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. We thank you for Don Lopez, who has been through such turmoil with his health, it seemed like yesterday, but some three decades ago, he made a confession of faith and was baptized and has been a faithful member. Please be with him in this time of recuperation, rebuild his body, that he might serve you in an undistracted way. Father, we don't want to be like those ten lepers that were healed and only one remembered to give thanks. We thank you first for those individuals that we reached out to and we invited to church to the Valentine's banquet. You were faithful to give so many opportunities. We know it is not our responsibility to convert. Only you can do that. You said it's required of a steward that he be found faithful. So we commit these individuals, some that have names in mind, We ask, our Father, that You continue to work in their lives, those who are saved who need a church home, those who are lost who most critically need salvation. And if it would please You, give us another opportunity to dialogue with them, an open door in which to share the gospel. We know, our Father, in just a few weeks, You've given us another opportunity to invite our friends, and we pray as people come on our campus, on that Friday evening that they'll sense that there's something different here, want to know more. We lift up Israel to you tonight. We think of our own president who wants to divide the land, and you warned in your word that those who would seek to divide what you call my land will meet you in judgment. Father, whether we like our president or not, you've commanded us to pray for him. We pray first for his salvation that you would work in his heart if it's not too late to bring him to yourself. But we also think of him like a Cyrus that you used to free Israel and to give them the product that they needed to rebuild a temple. We just ask that you continue to allow him to show favor towards Israel in the midst of this evil, evil force that has come against that people. The brutality is beyond belief. It reminds me tonight, Father, to pray for our brothers and sisters in northern India. As hundreds have been injured, many have faced death, had their homes burned, churches destroyed for following the Lord Jesus. Help them not to lose heart in doing good. Strengthen them through the persecution as your word teaches can happen. We commit them to you. We pray for one of our deacons, Sham, who needs to come from India, but he cannot get out of the country. We pray that you would give him favor that you would orchestrate the circumstances that he might be able to come home. We love you, our Father. We thank you that you first loved us, that in the deadness of our sin you sought us and opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we might believe and be saved. Thank you for those faithful stewards who shared their word with us. Help us to be equally faithful. Help us to invest in things that really matter. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.